Please take your Bibles and go to the book of Psalms. If uh, you need a Bible, uh, there's one in the chair in front of you, a black Bible. You can pull that out and you can go uh, kind of towards the middle of that black Bible. Find page 394, actually 393, but 394 as well. <clears throat> 394, Psalm 4. Psalm chapter 4, the book of Psalms. Psalm 4, again, 394 in that black Bible. Today we're going to look at Psalm 4. Next week I'll do a, a resurrection message. <clears throat> and then April 11th we'll start in the book of Judges. God's overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love for his people. That's the theme. And I'll give you the sub-theme. Here's the sub-theme of Judges. He wants you to solely want him. That's the sub-theme to Judges. He wants you to solely want him. And he'll discipline you to get there. He'll discipline you to get you there. So just be prepared for the book of Judges. God's serious about this. His love is relentless and he wants you to want him solely. That's what the book of Judges is about. That I whet your appetite. So, and do this, by the way, as you're reading through the book of Judges, I encourage you uh, this week, next week, you should be able to do it in two weeks. Find the number of times you see the word harlotry or played the harlot in the book of Judges, what Israel did, and you'll see, you begin to understand why that's the theme, sub-theme, God wants you to want him solely. So, that being said, Psalm 4 today, a resurrection message for next Sunday, then we'll jump in, in the book of Judges. Psalm 4 today, Psalm 4, I'm gonna read it, and then we'll jump in, doing a verse-by-verse study on Psalm 4. This was an actual evening prayer, a Davidic evening prayer. Uh, For the choir director on string instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. If relieve me in my distress, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? Will you love what is worthless and aim at deception, Salah? But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Verse eight, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. I'm sure you heard about the story of a little boy. Um, He'd been sent to his room because he was bad. A short time later he came out and I said to his mother, I've been thinking about what I did. I said a prayer. That's fine, she said. If you ask God to help you, to be good, he'll help you be good. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me be good. 
he said. I asked him to help you put up with me. That was his prayer. So. Yeah, it's so easy to pray the way we want to pray. It's easy to pray the way we want to pray. If you really want to learn how to pray, go to the Psalms. The Psalms are songs. And they're really prayers. Songs. Prayer songs, if you will. If you want to know how to pray, take time in the Psalms. They teach you a lot about how pray the prayer songs to recognize how to pray prayer is talking to God uh, like a wish request to God that's true but in the psalm today we're going to see or answer the question what is true prayer and there's other aspects to true prayer I'm sure you see it throughout the Bible Old Testament New Testament yes it's true but in this psalm it's going to answer us this question, what's true prayer? What is true prayer? As a matter of fact, you'll have, it's going to give us seven aspects of true prayer to change the way we pray and have us respond fittingly. As I said earlier, it was a Davidic evening prayer. And you have to understand the emotions and the historical context behind this psalm. It was probably written during the revolt of Absalom against David. If you know that story, 2 Samuel chapter 15, 16, 17. Absalom, his son, was coming into Jerusalem. Do you remember what David had to do? He fled. So get this. The king of Israel is fleeing from his throne. So now you're going to see the emotions that are going to be behind this prayer song. I mean, we, we, we looked at Psalm 24 and it was, remember it was, a, it was excitement. The Ark of Covenant was coming in and people dancing and right and everybody's just like excited. Last week we looked at Psalm 13. It goes back in time when David was running from Saul. So here at Psalm 4, it shoots us forward in David's timeline of his life and it's like, oh yeah. Remember what it was like to run from Saul? He's running again, and this time from his own son. He was running from his own son who was coming to Jerusalem. He was going to take the throne. So here's the feelings behind this, okay? This psalm, then you'll understand, this psalm gives us a, a Godward focus in the midst of life's storms. When trials strike, this is how we can pray to our God. And David gives us these seven aspects of true prayer. And I encourage you, I hope, and I'm encouraging you, this will change the way you pray. 
First, what is true prayer? True prayer, number one, cries for God's help. The first part of verse one and last part of verse one, answer me when I call. Notice the last part of verse one, hear my prayer. His request to God to help him was was based on his fellowship with God. I have fellowship with you. I'm crying out to you. God responds when we call to him. Hear me. He's going to bring up later on in verse 3 that he was confident that, that the Lord heard him. Do we go to God at any time? Do we cry out to him? Do we go to God at any time with with confidence that he will hear us? True prayer cries out to God for help, expressing dependence and need. And the only reason why you can be confident that God hears you is because you have direct access because of Jesus who lived and died and rose. You can come right into the presence of God right into his throne room. At any time, true prayer cries for God's help. That's the first one. Number two, uh, true prayer rests on God's vindication. Notice he says, next part of verse one, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. What does he mean by this? What does he mean when he says this, O God of my righteousness? God's righteousness is his John Piper says, the unswerving allegiance to uphold the value of his glory. That's what righteousness means. It's a good way to define it. But what does he mean when he says the God of my righteousness? My righteousness. What's, why is he saying my righteousness? What's he talking about? He's conveying the fact that he, David, was right. In other words, God vindicates those who are upright in his sight. God's the possessor of righteousness, yes. The author of righteousness, yes. He's also the vindicator for those who are righteous. He is for those who are misjudged and persecuted because he's the standard of what is right. God himself. And David was saying, I'm, I'm right before you, O God. He was right before God. He rested on the fact that God would vindicate him He knew he was right. He says, God, you know my heart. You know what's going on inside of me. Remember, this is that principle, that meta-narrative of the Bible where God's people suffer and they face persecution and yet in the end, God vindicates them. It's not in vain. Your suffering's not in vain, O Christian. And what's the proof of that? Jesus. Because Jesus suffered. He was the godly one, the God-man, who suffered and died and it looked like everything would fail. God vindicated him. We'll celebrate that next week. He resurrected him from the dead. God vindicates his people. True prayer rests on the fact that God will vindicate True prayer rests upon the fact that 
God will, in the end, make things right for his people. He will vindicate us. Christ is the proof of that. Jesus is the proof of that. If Jesus would have never physically resurrected from the dead, why even be here? There's no point. There's no point to your suffering. Go commit suicide right now. There's no point. No, but there is a point to suffering because as Jesus suffered, you will suffer and though we suffer now, the suffering in this life is, is, is it's not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. You will be vindicated. And see, true prayer, we rest in that. And, and, and sometimes vindication, some of it vindication happens now in this life. It did with David. Absalom was killed, he was reinstated. But sometimes it doesn't, right? But whatever happens, Christ's followers rest on God's perfectly timed vindication. And that's, true prayer rests upon that. Number three, true prayer depends on God's grace. Towards the end of verse one, he says, be gracious to me. Show pity. Have mercy on me. And our, and our prayers, are we making demands? Everything that comes to us is God's grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. You don't deserve anything. If you think God is obligated to you, you're wrong. God's not obligated to you. He doesn't need to give you anything. How can you say as the creation, tell the creator, you owe me? That's ridiculous. He owes you nothing. So we, true prayer depends on God's grace. Do, Do we depend on the grace and mercy of God? We don't deserve anything from God. Nothing. Number four, true prayer lists out our petitions. And that's what he does. And notice the order too. I mean, he's talking about like we're depending on him, his grace, resting on his vindication. We're crying out to him for help. And then here's my petitions. Notice he says, verse two. O sons of men, how long will my well? How long will my honor become a reproach? Will you love what is worthless and aim at deception, Salah? It's a statement to the enemy. Who was his enemy? <clears throat> Absalom. There was a coup going on. His little band of rebels. They turned David's glory to shame. David lived for the Lord but they love vain things or empty things or worthless things, he says. They aim at deception, worthlessness. They sought deception. In other words, to drag his reputation through dust. There was nothing but lies about David from Absalom. You, you see that in the story. Make reference to that Second Samuel chapter 15, 16, 7. You'll see that. The lies that, I mean, even Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, Betrayed David. And notice the, there the last part of verse 2, the Selah, is, it's like a, 
Uh, it's an expression of, of frustration. It's like, oh, Lord, look at this. Do you see what's going on? Go to verse 6. Many are saying, who will show us good? This is a statement from the destitute. In other words, what good is it to be with David? He's on the run. Who wants to be around that guy? I don't want to be around David. I want to be around with Absalom. Yeah, he's awesome. What good is there with David? People were questioning if he was doing the right thing. People started doubting David because of the lies. Uh, it reminded me of uh, um, Shimei, if I say his name right. He was one of the uh, relatives of Saul. And David was walking with his, his, I mean, his whole entourage. And this guy was cursing David and throwing rocks. Oh, curse you, curse you. This is what you get. And Abishai was like, David, I'm going to go over there and cut that boy's head off right now. Let me do it. David's like, no, 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 no. Don't do it. It's from the Lord. David's like, this is what's going on. It's hard to stand upon the truth when no one's behind you. And they begin to question you. And that's when you say, Lord, look at what's going on. I'm, ah, here's my petitions. I need you. True prayer, we list out, list your needs to God. What are your needs? What are your petitions? He hears his children. Interesting how what happens here in verse 4 and 5 in the prayer, which leads us to the fifth aspect of true prayer. Uh, true prayer results in godly responses. There's a result from true prayer. Interesting that he does this. When we have biblically-minded, Christ-focused prayers, it brings about four responses. And, and you see this right in the middle of the psalm. It's striking. You have the, the, the prayer, and then you actually have godly responses that come from prayer. It comes from having this attitude of prayer before God. True prayer results in godly responses. Here's four responses, A, B, C, and D. A, first godly response, we meditate in our hearts. Look at verse four. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed. What's he saying? Tremble. In other words, quake, rage, be agitated or be angry, but don't sin. Remember Ephesians chapter four, verse 26? Paul quotes this. Anger in itself is not necessarily sin. It's what you do with it. Be angry and don't sin. But then he says, meditate in your heart upon your bed. Now, meditate, you think of a general culture or new age. It's um, clear your mind. No, in the Bible, you don't clear your mind. In the Bible, you fill your mind. When you see the word meditate in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, 
It's calling you to fill your mind. Uh, We fill our minds with truth instead of simply responding out of emotions. (laughs) We respond from what we know to be true. Instead of that knee-jerk reaction, careful, my rip your pants. Don't just give a knee-jerk reaction. He says, stop. Fill your mind with truth. Think. A, meditate in our hearts. The first godly response from true prayer. Letter B, shut your mouth. We silence our mouths. Notice the last part there of verse four, and be still, be silent, be quiet. Selah. He puts that in there as, as ponder what was just said. It's, it's a musical crescendo to, to think. Keep from talking. Instead of talking, maybe we need to open up God's word, letting him speak. A good habit to develop is to let your prayers be directed from God's word. Maybe we need to open up the word of God. God speaks from his word. You want to know how God speaks? God speaks today. He speaks from this. Genesis Revelation. Everything you need for life and godliness is right here in the scripture. Maybe we just need to be quiet, be silent, fill your mind. We meditate in our hearts. We silence our mouths. See, we sacrifice our lives. Notice he says here, offer the sacrifices of righteousness in verse five. What does this mean? Sacrifice of righteousness, it was a a way of, of consecration even of confession, and, and really even of fellowship. You might say, what, I, I go to like and offer some sacrifice? Well, for the Old Testament, you've got to understand what the sacrifices meant. These rituals that they would do were ways Israel would symbolically give themselves to Yahweh. They were exterior actions that displayed interior devotion. And what happened was Israel got so caught on the on the, blah, blah, on the exterior, on the ritual. Well, I went, uh, uh, I did my thing, and, and, and I'm good. Did my little checklist. I went, to, I went to church, Christmas and Easter. I'm good. I'm fine. No. It's not about the ritual. It's what's behind the ritual. That's why he says, we sacrifice our lives. I give you my life. We fill our minds with truth, Shut your mouth. We give him our lives. And letter D, we submit our wills, our wills, uh, last part of verse five, and trust in Yahweh. What was David going to do? I'm going to submit my will. We submit our wills. Look, at the end of the day, we need to trust God's plan and what he's purposed to do. And what was David going to do? He's fleeing Jerusalem, the capital, his throne where he sat as king. 
You feel the emotions of that? He couldn't do anything else. And, and of, of course, he's probably was so angry at what was going on. But this was his response. It's good. You see this tremble. Aim, be angry and do not sin. Be, we should be watchful of our anger when things don't go the way we think they should go. Like with David. They didn't go as he expected. Was it deserved in some way from David? Yeah. There were some results, consequences. But still, he was having the right response. So, what do we look at? Resting on God's vindication, we depend on his grace, we listen to our petition, we cry for help, we have godly responses. Look at five, here's the sixth aspect of true prayer. Look at what he does here in the middle part of verse six. He asks for God's presence. Verse six, may are saying who will show us good. Notice what he says. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Yahweh. Let your kindness be directed toward us. It's actually thinking of the promise that Aaron would proclaim upon Israel in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, 26. And we see here that word countenance, the light of your countenance is the presence of God. The countenance of your face, he, he, he asked to be satisfied with God. I need your very presence with me. I feel you're far away. I want your blessing. I, I want your presence. I want you here with me. What mattered most to David was God's presence with him. Is that what matters most to you? Not being delivered from your turmoil, not being delivered from your trouble, not being delivered from your pain? Are you asking for God's presence? I mean, that's my first reaction. Not to ask for His presence, but get me out of this mess. That's my first reaction. Maybe it's not for for all you people, but for weaklings like me, my first reaction is get me out of here. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to be in pain. I don't want to deal with this every single day. Do you? What matters most to you? That you get out of that pain? Or that God's with you? I, I want you. That's, that's what David's asking. I, I want you. David was, was so good at this. And then last, last aspect of true prayer. True prayer, it comes down to it, relies on God's faithfulness. It relies that God's going to be faithful. In the end, when it's all said and done, God's going to be faithful. And you see that throughout Different aspects. There's actually four different aspects I'll give to you. God's faithfulness. First, A, God relieves. Look at uh, middle part of verse one. He says, 
you have relieved me in my distress. It's interesting, the word distress, it's a play on words here. The word distress literally means make narrow or tight. And when it says, you have relieved me, it means make large. So you've made large these tight spaces. What's he saying? He's going to rely on God's faithfulness that God makes large the narrow places. God makes light the difficult times. God sets us free in tight times. God eventually will relieve us. God eventually will vindicate us. God eventually will take the pain away. He will. He trusted in his faithfulness in that way. God relieves. And not only that, God relieves, God marks. Notice verse three, first part of verse three. But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly man for himself. Set apart. Separates him God separates us for himself. He marks us, distinguishing us from the rest. Here is the sovereign election of David, setting him apart. It was an assurance of God hearing his prayer and the assurance that God hears our prayers. A Christian, you must hold on to the fact that God loves you. He marks us. Notice he says the godly man for himself, a faithful one, a godly one, a lover of God, those whom God loves with an unchanging love and who love him back because he's changed their wills to love him most. Notice, set apart the godly man for himself. You see that? A faithful God upon whom we can depend He chooses us for the sake of his name, for himself, not for you. God doesn't choose you for you. God chooses you for himself. To show that he's faithful and gracious, God will always be faithful to us because he's always faithful to himself. Which is for the sake of his name. He's relying on God's faithfulness God relieves, God marks, and not only that, but he, God hears. Notice the middle part of verse three, or the last part, excuse me. Uh, Yahweh hears when I call to him. He was confident God heard him because God is faithful. He's a faithful God to his people. God is for his people, those who love his son. I mean, have you forgotten Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 and 16? He says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hold fast to confession. Come before the throne of God to find grace and mercy in our time of need. You come. And he hears. He was confident of that. We rely on the faithfulness of God. And then, last, number four, or letter D, excuse me, he gives... A couple uh, blessings here. First, he gives David joy. Look at verse seven. You put gladness in my heart. 
more than when their grain and new wine abound. I'm just so excited. Wait, 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 wait. Wait a second. He's running from Absalom. He's running from his throne. He's got nowhere to go. Ahithophel, his great counselor, has bailed on him and betrayed him. This guy is saying, So here he's going, and he's saying, Oh, you put gladness in my heart. What? This is crazy. He's psycho. There's something wrong with this guy. There's more joy in God than when a farmer enjoys a bountiful, enormous harvest of his crop. This is in my heart, his soul. And you gotta you understand something here. The historical context of this. David was receiving provisions by stealth. People were kind of hiding and going around and like, here David, here's some stuff for you. Here, 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 here you go, here you go, here you go. They were doing this by stealth because Absalom was in control. So if, if, if you went and gave David some stuff, you'd, you'd be considered as, 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 as going against uh, Absalom, so they'd kill you. So everyone's doing on by stealth. A rich harvest had come in, so the followers of Absalom had a powerful reserve in these rich storehouses at their disposal. I mean, they had all these resources. David and his followers, they're beggars, and yet David's saying, what I possess in my heart is far richer. Can you say that? God is faithful and he'll give that to you. You may not feel it, but he will and he does. He's faithful to that. David says it. Why can't we? He gives joy. Not only that, he gives peace. Look at what he says in verse eight. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. He gives peace. I'm gonna sleep good tonight, fellas. You ever had something where you're suffering, you're in pain, a trial, a hardship? How do you sleep? I sleep horrible. (laughs) I sleep really bad. Why? Because you're Mulling it over in your head, aren't you? Cats, I'm going to get a good night's sleep tonight. I'm, I'm good. Amid the turmoil, true prayer rests on God's faithfulness and he gives us peace. When we trust there's peace and you can sleep. Spurgeon, he says this, quote, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Isn't that nice? Interesting, verse eight. The end of verse eight, it gives you a reason because notice the four, four, there's, there's a reason, that's a reason, because why could he rely on God's faithfulness? Because of God's security, the end part, end part of verse eight, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. 
you yourself alone. No one else caused him to dwell in security. So he's free of care. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. He's running from Absalom. How does that make any sense? Yes, amid this turmoil, he knew he'd dwell in, in safety and security. He knew that eventually God would vindicate him for his own sake. He trusted in that. David literally had to trust that God would keep him safe in the end. He trusted in the promises that God made to him. Second Samuel chapter 7. God said, there's going to be someone on the throne. There's a promise to you, David. And your sons, your sons, it's going to be, I mean, it's the promise, really, of Jesus, the Messiah, coming. I mean, so remember, put yourself in that time frame. Put yourself in David's shoes. He's running from the very throne where he was reigning. Absalom's there. He has to bank on those promises that God made him. He has to. And he has to trust. Eventually, why, why, can, I, why can I rely on God's faithfulness? Because I know. I know the promise that God made, it will make me dwell in security. I know it to be true. And we must do that too. We must trust in the promises God has made to us do you believe that nothing will separate us from his love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Romans chapter 8 verse 38 and 39 is there. We must trust the promises of the gospel. God should judge you. God should condemn us because he's holy and just. And we're sinners. But that's why Jesus had to die. He died and he physically rose when you turn from your sin and you trust Christ Jesus alone, he'll save you. His love comes to you. If you're here, you're not a Christian, you should trust Christ and you will experience the love of God. You trust Christ and you will experience the grace and mercy of God. And nothing will separate you from that love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must bank upon those promises. True prayer cries for God's help. It rests on his vindication. It depends on his grace. We list out our petitions to him. It results in godly responses. It asks for God's presence. We want him with us. And relies that he's going to be faithful. That's true prayer. I pray that encourages you. You pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that we fall short and yet... We thank you, O Spirit, that you will take these truths and we ask that you implant them deep within us. And we fill our minds with the truth. And we fill our minds with the promises of the gospel. In the midst of trials and hardships and such tribulations, not at all how David what David experienced. In the midst of these times, though, we know we can rely on your grace. We can cry to you for help. 
We know you'll vindicate us. We give you our petitions and say, oh God, help me. We really want you 